Well, the Mindstyle Foundation is uh, made up of uh, three directors, and we have lots of friends like Rachel, but there are three of us who, who run the organisation, and then they're um, myself and, and Rob Waller and Kate Middleton, and Kate is definitely the better part of us as a three. She's an incredible communicator. She's a passionate church leader. Um, she is absolutely brilliant and my absolute go-to person on adolescent mental health and I know she's she's really changing um, the experience of so many people involved in, in in youth ministry particularly but also working with adults and I think we are absolutely privileged to have her um, again speaking to us today so why don't you put your hands together for Kate Middleton. Thank you very much. And no Kate Middleton jokes, Will. Well done, well done. Yeah, choose your best Kate Middleton joke. I'm going to, let me just move this. I'm going to pick up some of the themes that Rob has introduced so brilliantly today. And it's a great privilege to be here with you today. Thinking about mental and emotional health, because this has changed a bit. When I started out in the church longer ago than I care to think about, talking about mental and emotional health, our biggest challenge was to get people talking. Do you remember those days you could go to a conference, spend an entire week at a Christian conference, and nobody would mention it? It just wasn't spoken about in the church. This was our big passion, and it's what drove Rob and Will and I as we came into this area, just thinking, this is so important. God cares about our minds. He cares about how we're feeling. He cares about the experience that we're having of everyday life. But we've moved into a very different space now, haven't we? Because sometimes, I don't know, I, I find myself in, in quite a boom area of the, of the world now because everybody is talking about mental and emotional health. Did you notice that? Even the other Kate Middleton has got in on the act. What is that about? She's stealing my thunder. And that's brilliant, you know, we've just come out of uh, a week with, uh, because of Mental Health Awareness Day, where well, there has been so much stuff around, haven't there? Government campaigns have been launched, they talked about it on Britain's Got Talent, even McVitie's Biscuits have launched a campaign to get us talking. You're supposed to have a biscuit and, and chat over a cup of tea or coffee and stuff like that. So we are so encouraged to talk more about mental and emotional health and that's brilliant. But the question is what's our focus and that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today is now that we are talking it feels like there's a new challenge for us which is about the focus of what we're talking about because it's like Rob said really isn't it it's it's if you want to change if you want to get somewhere you have to be careful where you're aiming because you want to put into your sat-nav the place that you want to end up at. You know, if I'm going to get in my car and come to Brighton, I want to stick into my sat-nav, Brighton. If I put Edinburgh in, I'm, I'm going to get to somewhere I didn't want to go. So when we're talking about mental and emotional health, we have to think really carefully about what the focus is, what the conversation is about. Now that people are talking so, so well, what's our focus And the thing is that's particularly important when it comes to mental and emotional health. 
Because you'll see lots of models around, you'll read them, you'll see them on Facebook where people compare mental and emotional health to physical health. You've heard the models, haven't you? It's, like, it's just like if you've got a broken leg, you have, to, you have to get well, you have to recover. You know, If you're ill, you take your medication to get well. And those models comparing mental and emotional health to physical health, they're, they're great. They have real value. They help people understand the importance of mental and emotional health in a world where we, we, we didn't have a good understanding of it before. The problem is though is that mental and emotional health is different to physical health in a very key way because it isn't that binary model of you're you're well or you're not. There are aspects of your mental and emotional health that, that are normal, they're part of your normal life, there are things that we experience. Your mental and emotional health will go up and down throughout your life, sometimes even in the course of one day. It isn't like that. And, and we, the people you'll see on stage here today, we don't stand here as the people who, who are now well sat at the top of our, of our mental and emotional health tree. So we can teach all of you people about how to do life really well. That's not the way it works. Don't think that for a second. And the challenge with mental and emotional health there is to think about how we talk about these things. How do we hold the balance between teaching on something that that feels like it's about illness with the reality that many of these things are things that we will all experience as part of our normal everyday life? Because a lot of the things that we might talk about today, they can be illness, but they can also be part of normal life. They can be part of normal human experience. Because otherwise our understanding of what is normal can get twisted, can't it? So emotions, for example. We can talk about an emotion like anxiety as a mental health problem because it can be so problematic. There is no other emotion that causes as many problems as anxiety does. And yet, these emotions that we have, including the difficult ones, including the inconvenient ones, including the challenging ones, are actually essential to the normal functioning of the human brain. There's so many studies that look at what emotions are, what their purpose is, how they're designed to act. And and there are studies and areas of research that look at people who do not have that normal human experience of emotion for whatever reason, brain injuries or, or, or whatever it is that's caused them to lose the normal experience of an emotion like anxiety. And you might think, man, that sounds amazing. Imagine if I could eradicate all anxiety from my life. How cool would that be? Is Kate going to tell me how to do that? But actually the reality is people who have lost that normal experience of those emotions, they are absolutely incapacitated by the lack of that emotion. They struggle with the normal parts of everyday life. It has a massive and devastating impact on their wellness. So when we talk about mental and emotional health, we have to recognise that some of these things that we deal with are, are, are part of normal experience and actually are part of an essential experience. So when we talk about emotional wellness, we can't have a model that says, how do I eradicate an emotion like anxiety, for example? It has a purpose, it has a function. So what do we do? How do we understand that? How do we teach? How do we talk about these things so that we're directing ourselves in the right way? And so often it isn't about the initial emotion, is it? It's about how we react to these, the emotions that life is triggering, the challenges of life. 
It's about our reaction in terms of the initial emotion, but even more than that, it's what we do with it as a result. How we respond to an emotion like anxiety in the moment, what we do next. Because if we're not careful, the way that we talk about emotions like this, what we can do is generate a fear of our own emotions. So that when we experience an emotional reaction like anxiety, what happens next is that we, we experience a fear of that fear itself. And I like to talk about emotions as, as, as a bit like striking a match. You know, they're designed to burn down that, that little bit of wood. They have a function. They, they grab your attention. They set you up in case you need to act or react. They have a purpose. But when they've done their job, they burn out. The problem is that sometimes our reaction to our emotions means that what we're dealing with is not that little flame burning down a match, but but it's like our reaction has fanned that flame up into something much bigger. And what you're dealing with is something that feels a lot more like an emotional bonfire, a huge blaze of something than something that's functional and purposeful and doing something useful within your own mind. So what we're talking about here is not just a a model of emotional wellness that says eradicate emotions. What we're talking about is how do we hold our emotions really well? How do we deal with a problematic emotion like anxiety so that we can manage it as part of our normal experience so that it does the job it's designed to do but doesn't start to cause more problems itself? Because the thing with an emotion like anxiety is Anything that matters in your world will trigger some anxiety, particularly if there's a degree of uncertainty, a degree of question in terms of how it's going to come out. So many of the most significant and most valuable moments in life will involve anxiety. You know, I have a teenage daughter, she's 14. She she goes into an exam. I want her to be a little bit anxious. Sometimes I think maybe she could do with a little more anxiety. I have a seven-year-old son. He could definitely do with more anxiety. He has no concept of the potential for serious harm when he's crossing the road, for example. So it is about how we hold an emotion like anxiety, how we respond to it without fear, without panic, without judgment of our own emotions. Because otherwise, our experience of something that's normal can then lead us to somewhere that is very, very difficult and very painful and very challenging. I love one of the Greek words in the, in the New Testament to talk about anxiety has this literal meaning to be torn apart, to be, to, be, to be separated, to be pulled in many, many different directions. You know, you could imagine it, if your mind is like a big sheet of paper, all the things that you're worrying about, it's like you're torn into to separate pieces. You're drawn in so many different places. The challenge, you literally can go to pieces because your mind is trying to deal with so many anxieties, so many worries, so many draws on your attention. We're talking about running on empties day. Isn't that so often what it feels like? There are so many things you're just trying to keep track of. So many things, so many worries, so many things that could go wrong. We have to learn how to hold emotions like that and respond to them well. That great verse from Matthew 6 says, do not worry about tomorrow, but deal with each challenge that comes your way, one at a time. We have to learn how to do that and do it well. Because I think 
there is actually a real risk here if we don't direct our conversation, if we don't direct our focus well in this area. And this is a particular risk for young people. I do, as Will says, I do have a particular passion for working with young people, uh, teenagers, adolescents, people in their 20s. And, and this is a time in life when we are forming identity. We are understanding who we are. Literally in, in a cognitive sense, that, that understanding of who I am, how I act and interact with the world, this sense of this is who I am. And so teenagers at this stage are very, very vulnerable to anything that gives them a strong sense of identity because they, they don't know who they are. That's the teenage angst cry, isn't it? I don't know who I am. I feel like I'm a different person every day. And that's normal. It's part of teenage experience. But it does make them vulnerable. Anything, therefore, to a teenager that gives a strong sense of identity, a strong sense of who perhaps you should be, that tells you how to act and react, that helps you make sense of all the model of emotions and things that you're feeling. One of the other features of teenage life is that your emotions are much more dramatic, much more up, much more down. They swing more powerfully. They're more unpredictable than our adult emotions. So to teenagers who are trying to make sense of that, and looking for identity. We have to be very careful how we're talking about mental and emotional health because did you know that the mental and emotional ill health space, that's a powerful tribe if you're 14, 15 and trying to understand who you are. And the risk is therefore... If we don't talk about the right thing, if, we, if we're not careful about our talk, if we spend too much time talking about illness and not enough time talking about wellness, that we miss the very thing that we want for our young people, that we want for ourselves, our friends, our family, the people that we love. And the inevitability, if we're not careful, is that we will talk about illness because that's what's drawn us to be talking about this in the first place. And we might end up directing them somewhere that we never wanted them to be, particularly those teenagers who are so vulnerable to looking for identity. Because there is the risk that this thing of illness as identity becomes a draw to our young people. They don't know who they are and this feels like it tells them. They're experiencing difficult emotions so they could move into that space. So that's an important and a significant risk that I think we need to be aware of. And we need to make sure that we are talking as much, if not more, about wellness and health and good things to avoid that happening. Because the other risk then, when you have a context where so many people are talking about mental and emotional health, is that you, you hit a space where, again, particularly teenagers and young people, but sometimes adults as well, you start to feel like, you only exist if you're struggling. You know, my, my, my teenage daughter, she says to me, the thing is, mom, it's just not very cool to be happy. <laughs> and she has a very good point. So illness has become our identity. We've started to understand who we are. We've started to identify with the tribe. But then the risk then is that sadness becomes our security because we feel like we belong. We feel like we're noticed. We feel that's our way of getting attention. We feel like that's how we exist. That's how we have validity. That's how we have authenticity. And we've forgotten how to be happy. We've forgotten how to do joy. We've forgotten how to flourish and thrive. And it's all the things that we want for the people we love, but we've forgotten to talk about it. 
So Rob is so right. We have to be careful about our direction. We have to be careful that we're talking about these things that we want so much. Because resilience, another buzzword in our culture, is not about avoiding difficulty. Resilience is about flourishing in spite of the storms that life throws at you. You might have one of those friends who just seems to lead a totally charmed life. Anybody got friends like that? You know, everything they touch goes perfectly. They never hit any obstacles or difficulties. I try not to make friends with those sorts of people. (laughs) Normal life is a lot more challenging usually. We hit storms. We hit challenges. We hit difficulties. We have to deal with awkward emotions. The more you want to push the limits, the more you want to achieve, the more you want to flourish and meet your potential, the more you're likely to experience emotions like anxiety because you will be challenging stepping out of your comfort zone. So we need to equip people with the skills to manage those things. We need to talk about how we sustain ourselves through difficult times. How do you manage when you're running on empty? When you're juggling so many things, when you do feel pulled apart by the worries, the anxieties, the responsibilities of life. So what I want to suggest to you is that we need to change the direction of our conversation. We need to pursue joy. We need to make sure that we are talking about the good stuff as much as we're talking about the challenging stuff. And and it is good that we're talking about the challenging stuff. It's okay not to be okay. It's important that we have an authenticity and an honesty about that stuff, but we must talk and teach and share and learn about the good stuff as well. You may have heard this uh, verse quoted many times, possibly sometimes in an unhelpful way, Nehemiah 8:10. the joy of the Lord is your strength. Ever had that quoted at you on a really rough day and you think, mm. What I love about that verse is the literal meaning of the word that's translated there as strength in the Hebrew is is actually, it means fortress. It's your place of protection. It's your security. In the rough times, in the challenging parts of life, actually, is there something powerful that we risk missing about the value of joy, about what joy can bring us that can get us through? Much as it's important that we talk about anxiety and we teach about anxiety and sadness and depression and, and all the difficult stuff, is there something that we can learn about emotions like joy and happiness that, that actually is about the skills that will sustain us through the challenging times in life? Is resilience as much about how we pursue joy and learn to develop the the skills that we have around joyfulness and happiness so that we have somewhere to retreat to, that place of protection and safety when life is at its most challenging. And I want to ask you a question today. Have, Have you forgotten to pursue joy in the busyness of all the other drawers for your attention right now? Because did you know you, you, you have to learn how to be happy? This is, this is a weird thing, isn't it? We think that happiness should just be something that, that, that happens. Very often I will hear people when I'm talking to them, they will say, the thing is, Kate, I'm just, I'm just not a very happy person. 
Like we, we have this, this, great, this great woman, Alex, who works with us. Some of you guys who know me will know Alex. Alex is the happiest person in the world. She is bouncy, she is cheerful, she is out there. And, and people will look at somebody like Alex and say, thing is, I'm just not like that. It's great for her, but that's just not my experience. Or they will say, life has dealt me a really rough hand. I've just got so much rubbish going on in my life or I've had these awful things happen. I'm just, I'm just not lucky like that. I'm, I'm just not destined to be a happy person. But all of the research into happiness says, even if that is the case, just under about half of your happiness, statistically, comes not from luck, not from experience, not even from personality. It comes from choices, decisions that you've made. So you can learn how to be happy. This is um, Donald Altman. He's an expert in happiness. He says, being in a state of joy is a learned skill, not an innate ability. We can learn how to do it. And you can can see, you just had it on the the screen. This is why it's so important. Let's pop that graph back up. This is a graph that shows, on average, statistically, your happiness through life. Now, some of you are younger than me here. But yeah, this is is potentially a slightly depressing graph because of what happens in the middle of it. (laughs) And did you know that your natural joy, your natural happiness level dips dramatically basically when you're roughly in the zone I'm in it's just it's really good news I love this is that the columnist Dan Kopp puts it like this he says life starts well and ends well the middle often stinks <laughs> but this is the stage in life isn't it where there are so many draws on your time I don't know if anybody else is in the same space I'm in I still have relatively young children I also have elderly parents I have I have well, a few jobs actually. I have so many responsibilities, so many things that are often outside of my control, so many things that I'm supposed to be doing. This is a challenging phase of life and we have to get really good, therefore, at pursuing joy. We have to do that intentionally and do it really well. Because we talk about burnout, particularly at a conference like this, running on empty, and I often, all we're thinking is basically, have, have, I, have I collapsed yet? No? Then that's a good day. And we can think of it like, anything, any, if you think burnout's over here, anything up to actual burnout is probably fine. Probably pretty much normal. Do you ever have one of those days I do sometimes when you just think, right, this, this is how I'm going to have my nervous breakdown this moment with that child or that thing at work or that traffic jam when I'm supposed to be getting to that meeting or whatever it is. You think, that's it, this is... And then you get by it and you think, actually, no, it's okay, I survived that. I'm feeling relatively calm again. I've got through it, so it's okay. But are we missing something there about flourishing, about thriving? Because if we're living constantly on the edge of burnout and exhaustion, even though we never actually hit it, is that, is that really living? Is, is that life to the full? You know, friends, we come at this with, with a new perspective as people of God. We understand something about life. We have a message to take out to people, which is about something bigger, something better. I love what uh, church leader Carrie Newhoff talks about around burnout, where he talks about low-level burnout, and that's his, this is his definition. He says, it's where the functions of life continue, but the joy of life has gone. Do we need to think more about low-level burnout? Where we're, we're not exhausted, we're not collapsing, but it's not really living. 
What we want to give to our children, to our friends, to the people we love and care about isn't just that they manage to get through life without collapsing. We want them to thrive. We want them to flourish. We want them to enjoy life. We want life to the full. So I have three questions to ask you today and and some stuff to share on joy, on happiness. And the first one is this. What brings joy to your heart? What makes you happy? What do you enjoy doing? And some of you may be in that phase of life like me where you do, you do need to stop and, and try and remember that. It's like when, when your kids get older, and I don't know if anybody, those of you who've been to the stage where suddenly all of your children are at school and you think, what did I used to do when I had time like this? I don't, don't remember now. What did I used to do? What do I do that I enjoy doing? because it's so long since you had the time to do stuff. Have you forgotten what brings joy to your heart? Do you, do you need to have some fun? This is radical advice today. But do we need to prioritise fun better? When did you last really, really laugh? Now, some of you are like, oh, it was this morning or yesterday. But some of you, seriously, you, now you're sitting there thinking... Oh man, that's actually quite a hard question to answer. When did I last really laugh? Do we need to have more fun? Do we need to remember how to do that? Do we need to remember that it's okay to prioritise our own joy? Some of you have so many demands of your time for other people. You're so concerned about other people. So many amazing people in this room. But you've forgotten that it's okay to be concerned about yourself. It's okay to care for yourself. It's okay to prioritise that sometimes. It's okay that what you're about in a given moment is something that is about you and you having fun and enjoying life. That's not a self-indulgence. That's good psychology. That's good mental health. That's a good way to live it's a good thing to do so think about it maybe after today you need to to go home and and brainstorm some stuff that you enjoy doing maybe there are things you used to enjoy doing you used to do a lot but you just stopped doing them now my husband and I bought a new sofa recently because we realized we'd forgotten to sit in our living room Anybody, is anybody else in that phase of life like when did you last sit in your living room and watch television and just chill out relax we would got to the point where we were so busy so driven so many different draws on our time we'd forgotten to do that what brings joy to your heart that's my first question but the thing is there's an even more amazing source of joy and like I say, friends, you know, we, we come here as people of God. We have a bigger message to the world than just about our human cleverness, our human sources of things that get us through. We, we have something else to bring to this conversation. I love Psalm 4-7. The joy that you have given me is more than they will ever have with their human stuff. This talks about grain and wine. It's pretty good, grain and wine, beer and wine. There are human things that we know bring us joy, but there's something else that we can tap into. And I just, I just want to talk about two other sources of joy, therefore, that we have. Two more words for joy that come from the New Testament. Here's the first one. This is an example of it in Luke 2.10. I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all the people. I'm not, I'm not going to mention Christmas. Nobody panic. But this is about joy 
That word joy translated in that verse has the same root as the Greek word for grace. It is about joy that comes from just an awareness of God's favour, of God's grace, of God's blessings in your life. It is, it is that moment when you just suddenly become aware of something and, and just of how lucky and how blessed you are to have it. That when you, you feel almost the smiling of God upon you, like the sun's just come out on a, on, on a cloudy day. And you have those moments of recognising it. Ever felt that? Just that moment of thinking, oh, I'm just so lucky to have that. And the amazing thing about that type of joy is that it exists even when we are in really difficult times, even when there are big challenges. There are always little things in your life that are about the blessings of God, that are about good stuff. We just have to look for them. So the story of Joseph in Genesis in the Old Testament is one of so many ups and downs, so many challenges, so many difficulties. But Genesis 39, 21, I love this verse. Just, you could so easily miss it. It just says, the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Just because you're in a prison, just because you're in a difficult place doesn't mean that those things aren't there. It, it makes them very easy to miss though. Isn't that always the way? Sadness, difficulty, shouts for your attention. Emotions like anxiety, whose job is to get your attention. It would be so easy for our focus to become dominated by those things and we miss good stuff that's going on. On a grey day, you can miss the splashes of colour so easily. So my second question to you is, do you have the time to spot those blessings in your life? Are you so busy that you could just miss them? As psychologists, we talk about something called savouring, which is when you do spot one of those moments, instead of just carrying on with your busyness and your everyday life and all the things that you've got to do, it's just stop, pause for a minute. Just really enjoy it. I say it's like squeezing the juice out of something. Squeeze all the juice out of it. Particularly if you're in a difficult time right now, maybe this conference does find you in a space that's really challenging. Maybe there's tough stuff going on. When you come across something that is about recognizing a blessing, something good, something warm, something positive, don't miss it. Squeeze every last thing out of it. I don't know what that is for you. A really good cup of coffee. One that you get to drink all the way down without being interrupted. I don't know, when did that ever happen? Maybe, maybe it's a hug from someone you love. Did you know that it takes about 15 seconds for your brain to register the physical contact that you experience in a hug? We know that that, that moment of intimacy triggers the feel-good hormones, hormones that make us feel more secure, that can, that can help us in difficult times, but it takes, it takes about 15 seconds for those to kick in. So 15 seconds, next time you hug someone, count. If the next time you're hugged by someone, they are counting. Also, now you know why, don't be alarmed by that. But does it mean sometimes we need to linger in those moments? We're so busy, quick hug, and then on with our day. No. Next time someone gives you a hug, linger for a bit. Let's savour those moments. Let's squeeze every last bit of joy out of them. And all the more so when life is difficult. 
And, and, and the second type of joy I want to talk about that the Bible talks about. Here's a verse on the screen. You have shown me the way of the life and you will fill me with joy. I love this word. This is another Greek word that's translated as joy into English. But what it literally means is it is the joy that comes from having a different perspective on things. And literally it's having a perspective that is about recognising victory, that's recognising celebration. It came originally in the Greek language from, a, it's a sporting term. So it is literally the kind of joy you feel when your team have just won. Football, rugby, what, choose your sport. It is that type of joy. It is that sense of victory, of celebration. And you know, human life sometimes may give you little cause for joy, but there is a bigger picture here. There is a bigger perspective. And again, as people of God, we have an understanding of something bigger going on which can be about celebrating even in tough times. But that's a tough skill to learn. How do you worship when actually it feels like your world is falling apart? How do you focus your eyes on God when when the difficulty in your life is screaming for your attention? How do you do that? How do you do it well? Did you know that actually the human mind has a negative bias? You are more likely to recall moments from your life that were difficult. Your mind is more likely to settle on things that are negative and difficult. It makes sense, really, doesn't it? Because those are the things that you don't want to repeat. They're the things you don't want to happen again. They're the things you probably need to learn more from. But it means that if we're not intentional about the way that we think and about what we focus on, our world can become dominated by those negative things. This is um, Paul's advice from Philippians 4.8. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things that are true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. That's good advice. How much would it change your experience of life right now if you took that advice if we intentionally gave even a fraction of the time that we give to worrying about stuff that we probably can't change anyway, to thinking about good stuff. If, if we change the way we think about ourselves and stop beating ourselves up with all the things that are wrong with us. You know, you're not perfect, neither am I. Boy, are we aware of that. But what if we spent some time thinking about this, about ourselves, the things that are the best things about us, not the worst. The things that are beautiful about us, not the ugly things. Things to praise, not things to curse. How would that change things? How might it sustain you through the challenges of life, the difficult times? How could it be your fortress? Because this is, it's the antidote to something else that has become hugely common in our society that, that I think is, is, a, is a wave in terms of things that we're talking about and things that we're training our young people in as we train them how to think, how to, how to do life. And it is cynicism Anybody got hugely cynical teenagers at home? Yeah. And what I want to ask you then as my third question is, how do you nurture hope instead of cynicism? Because that is a skill and it's a skill we need to teach our young people. Yes, we need to teach them to challenge things, to question things. They're good skills, but we, we need to teach them how to hope and, and I think we have a generation growing up at the moment who, who the risk is, is that they, they've never learned how to hope. They don't see hope. They don't read hope. Everything they see speaks negativity over them. It tells them about a future that's going to be difficult 
and dangerous and risky and challenging. And we need to remind them how to hope, how to spot good stuff that's going on. As people of faith, we have something valuable to bring to that discussion. Because that's what the story of Abraham tells us, doesn't it? That what Abraham managed to do, this great verse from Romans talking about Abraham's experience. You remember he was promised that he was going to become the father of all nations, which was great except for one small problem. He had no children and he was really quite old. And I love that verse that says that what Abraham managed to do is that even when there was no reason to hope in human terms, he managed to carry on hoping. How do we do that in difficult times? How do we hold on to hope? That's such a valuable skill. Abraham had a different perspective because he understood that the promises of God were bigger than what felt like the human realities of his situation. He knew that there was hope even when in human terms it felt like there was none. One of my favourite names for God that's used in the Old Testament is one that's easy to miss, but it's where God is described as he who breaks open the way. Sometimes it feels like in human terms there is no way through our struggle and our suffering and our difficulty. But we worship a God who can find a way. Let's not forget that. So I want to finish today with these words from Isaiah 58. This is the promise if we can do this, if we can remember to focus as much on joy as we do on difficulty, if we can learn these amazing skills of how to sustain good things, even in times of challenge, if we can teach those, those skills to our children and our teenagers. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Literally what that talks about, your needs is your soul, your spirit, your emotions. And the word that says strengthen is basically he will prepare you for war. If your life feels like a battleground right now, learning to do some of these things well strengthens you. It sets you up so you are like a well-watered garden, a spring whose waters never fail. But I love the end of that passage because what we've talked about here is great for us and important for us. But I say to you, friends, and I want to leave with this thought, it's even more impactful for the people that we're talking to, for the people who are vulnerable, for the people coming behind. And that is why I am so passionate about how we talk to the rising generation about their mental wellness, their emotions, these difficulties that they face, that they challenge. Because look at the end of that passage Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets with dwellings. I love that. Repairer of the breach. Literally, the Hebrew translation there is that there's a, there's, a, there's a gap. There's a gap that needs to be filled. You remember that verse where, where God says, I look for someone who would stand in the gap. And I, and I couldn't find anyone. That's, that's the same word. There is a gap here. There's a breach and there is a genuine risk for the generation that is rising. In my daughter's friendship group right now, um, and she's pretty sociable, so there's a lot of them. She is the only teenager who doesn't have a mental and emotional health condition. All of her friends are struggling. She's the only one so far. This is a genuine challenge. And if we don't take up this message and start to talk about the good stuff, the things that we want for our young people. The risk is, is that we will lose a generation 
who have never learned how to do life well, who have never had the opportunity to flourish and thrive. So I want to finish with that challenge because this is great stuff for us. This is a great opportunity. As people of faith in particular, we have something to bring. But I want to suggest to you it's more than just an opportunity. This is our responsibility. We must talk about this stuff. We must take the message out. We must stand in the gap. We must bridge the gap. We must hold back the the swell of something here that could engulf our young people, that could engulf a generation, and we must support them. So when I talk about U-turn, do we need to make a U-turn? Do we need to change our direction? It is for you. It is for me. But even more than that, it's for them. So let's remember to focus on joy today and practice it ourselves so we can pass on those good messages to our young people. Thank you so much for listening. Do you want to...